I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, your brain on food. We actually burn more calories when what we think we're eating is really rich and decadent than if we're eating the exact same thing, but we think it's you know sensible and low calorie. Then maybe what our healthcare system needs is a dose of evidence. Doctors believe strongly in the need for science to guide uh, care, but in many specific cases, when science challenges treatments, rather than embracing the science, we often see medical societies challenge it. Plus, why research without practical value has practical value. These days, we are able to uh, deal with diseases at the molecular level, which is only possible because 50 years ago, we allowed scientists to ask basic questions about the basis of life. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Imagine you're relaxing, settling in to watch a little TV for the night, and your snack on this particular night is jelly beans, all different colors mixed together in a bowl. Do you think you would eat any more or less if the jelly beans were separated out into different bowls depending on their color? Now, it may sound like a crazy question until you realize that science says you would. When the colors are all mixed up, people eat about twice as many jelly beans. That's good trivia for a cocktail party, but it also tells us a lot about how our decisions around food intersect with our brain and why so many of us struggle to make the right decisions. And in a country where obesity has doubled in the last few decades and more than 70% are now overweight or obese, understanding what food does to our brains has become very important. Rachel Hers is the author of the book, Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. She's a neuroscientist and teaches at Brown University. Rachel, thanks for being here. Great to be here, Kara. So let me pick up on that jelly bean study. What does that study tell you about us and about our brains? <laughs> So it's actually, I mean, it does tell us about our brains, but it really tells us about our psychology and how we're influenced by what we see when we eat, because there's an enormous impact of the visual cues around us that tell us things about food and how that influences and motivates us to consume. And what you talked about was the fact that when colors are all mixed together, there looks like there's more variety. And when there's more variety, we're more attracted. Whereas if we see only, let's say, the red jelly beans by themselves or the yellow jelly beans by themselves, it looks more boring. And so we're not as inclined to keep engaging with it as when there's a jumble of colors. And this has to do with something called sensory-specific satiety. And in mm -hmm. this case, we're getting satiated by what are eyes are seeing. So it's like if you had a dish with just like one clump of food in it, you know, it's not as appealing as lots of little things. Right. You you um, write about this thing that's fascinating called the, the Del Boeuf illusion, where the size of the plate, which you would think, what I, you know, I can overlook the size of a plate. That doesn't matter. It completely changes how our brain processes um, how much food we're eating. You want to talk about that? 
Sure. So this is a, an illusion. It's a very well-known, famous illusion. It's a very simple illustration. So if we have, let's say, a scoop of pasta in a plate that is a big plate, that pasta looks smaller mm -hmm. than that same scoop of gnocchi with pesto on a small plate. Mm -hmm. And so because we think that, you know, when we've eaten more food, that that's a signal that, okay, that's enough, and that looks like it was, it was big, and therefore I can be fine with that— when it's on a larger plate, we don't think we've gotten as much, and we then are much more likely to serve ourselves more, especially when we can self-serve, because we mm -hmm. use the circle of the plate as a cue to, you know, how much is the right amount, and if the circle of the plate is bigger, then we put more on the plate. And studies bear this out. Like, the more you give people, and, and also, you know, what they perceive they're getting, it totally impacts. Like, this, norm, this idea that, oh, you have a certain amount of hunger and a certain amount of food will satiate you. It just, it seems like study after study shows that is not right. That is not right. That's exactly, that's exactly right. It is not right. We, our bodies do not respond in sort of neat physiological rules where you've given me this many calories, my body burns it, I know how much I've consumed, I therefore feel full. And I think one of the most fascinating things about research connected to this is how we can be tricked with labels that tell us about calories and indulgence and sort of sumptuousness of what mm -hmm. we've eaten mm -hmm. to the point where we actually burn more calories when what we're, we think we're eating is really rich and decadent than if we're eating the exact same thing, but we think it's, you know, sensible and low calorie. Really? I don't even know how that would work, but somehow your brain is telling your body, like, work up more of a sweat or just burn off more calories doing this run than normal because you just ate an ice cream? Well, it's actually a little, not quite like that, but okay. it is basically just a giant placebo effect, but over something that you'd think you wouldn't have any conscious control over, which right. is your metabolism. Right, right. But in this case, what has to do with ghrelin levels, and ghrelin is the hunger hormone, so it, it rises as we get hungrier, and then technically, you know, when we eat, it should fall, and when ghrelin levels fall, it raises our metabolism, so we burn off the calories of what we've just eaten. Mm -hmm. But what this research showed was that purely by changing the label of a milkshake in this case that was, in fact, 340 calories, so not negligible in calories, but in one case was labeled as 620 indulgent decadent calories, and in another case was labeled as like 140 sensible, you know, zero fat, zero added sugar kind of thing, mm -hmm. that when people were drinking this milkshake that they thought was a super calorie extravaganza, their mm -hmm. ghrelin levels plummeted after consuming it, and therefore their metabolism revved up. Compared to when they thought it was just this sensible, low-calorie thing, their ghrelin levels didn't move. So mm. it was just like it was like flatlining. And so that, to me, is really incredible. <laughs> what does this say to you about self-control? Because we talk uh, a lot about, you know, d don't eat so much of this. or You know, that's like the advice, right? Don't eat so much of this or try to avoid this or whatever. Well, that, that has to do with conscious not eating something or whatever. Um, but I just wonder how much we're talking about feedback from parts of our body that we're not even aware of. And so if we're talking about stuff that we're not aware of and that's subconscious versus actions people are telling us to take consciously, how those things play out or do battle. 
So willpower and self-control, we all differ in how much we have of it. But it turns out that there's a fair bit of research that shows that willpower is actually taking up mental energy in and of itself. So it's hard to say, no, I am not going to have that second slice of pizza when you really want it. Or no, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to have that brownie for dessert even though you really want it. Mm -hmm. Or no, I'm just kind of standing here in the break room and there's a tray of danishes and (laughs) I'm not really hungry, but I really want it. Right, right. So Depending on how much other stress you have in your life, and also it doesn't have to even be, it could be emotional stress, which certainly is going to help push you over to the comfort food domain. But it could also be that you're really engaged in some kind of work project that's really demanding intellectually, and you've really been expending Hmm. a lot of sort of brain calories in terms of doing it. You're less likely to be able to really resist the danishes at that point than you would be if you were doing something less mentally taxing. Mm -hmm. And so it seems as if there's sort of this sort of uh, limited amount of resource we have at any one given moment. Mm -hmm. And if it's too divided, Mm -hmm. then our willpower is probably going to be the one thing that falls off. Mm. But it could also be, depending on what your temptations are, you could have multiple different temptations at the same time. And then there'd be sort of a hierarchy. So I know that some... Uh, legislators, some people in in public policy have thought, well, one solution, post calories, because if you tell people like, oh, a sandwich is 500 calories, and then you see another sandwich that's like 1,200 calories, you might not realize it by eyeing it. But when you see the numbers, you realize, oh, I guess it's a lot bigger. I guess this has, you know, a lot more calories in it. Um, Have we seen that work? Does telling people, does giving people signals by giving them numbers work? Well, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to work very well. Just giving people calorie information, there was actually a big study done in the metro New York City area, also around New Jersey, on fast food restaurants, and whether or not posting calorie content, this was before it was mandated, Mm -hmm. would have an impact on what people ate. And although people said that they noticed it initially, and it might have sort of had a little bit of a, a bell it really didn't have much of an impact on how they consumed food and over time sort of washed out. Mm -hmm. But what was encouraging from another set of studies that were done actually in Baltimore in lower socioeconomic districts, looking at how adolescents were purchasing sugary beverages and, you know, junk food from convenience stores, is that posting, they checked different kinds of information relative to energy consumption. And it was found that posting the number of miles you'd need to walk to burn off that soda That was the most effective in terms of changing people's behavior so that they bought less soda, more water, different kinds of things. And so that, you know, different ways of, you know, presenting that information, I think, is really key. Right. Which actually makes sense because what is 300 calories anyway? To most people, it has no meaning. But if you say, like, oh, if you drink this drink, you'll have to walk two miles to work it off. You think two miles? That's really far. I don't know if this drink is worth it. Yeah, and I think what was also really neat about this study is that the miles to walk were most effective for for these adolescents, Mm. but maybe in different markets or different demographics, different information, like how many miles you'd have to run or how many tennis matches you'd have to play or how long you'd have to spend in your spinning class. Like, I think sort of tailoring this to the market is actually probably important, but and I think this is the most valuable kind of information to give people. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Rachel Hers, an assistant professor at Brown University and author of the book, Why You Eat, What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. We also talk a lot, obviously, in this country about sugar and salt. And so I want to take them one by one. Sugar first. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about uh, 
you know, how bad it is for you, really, how it acts on your brain. Uh, because once upon a time, sugar was considered both a luxury and actually kind of good for you, good for your body, and things have totally switched around. So I want to just start this whole section by saying that I have a bit of a problem with all the nutritional and medical advice that comes out on a daily basis and Mm -hmm. then seems to change on an almost daily basis. Mm -hmm. And my bottom line for dealing with all of this is to, you know, sound cliche, take it with a grain of salt, but also to... (laughs) But also to use common sense. (laughs) So common sense is really the place I think we should all be coming from and not jumping on the bandwagon of the latest, don't do this, or, you know, this is the right amount, this is the number you want to be at, or, you know, no more than this, but, and then tomorrow it'll be something different and good versus bad and so forth. So with respect to sugar, even if you don't really have that much of a sweet tooth, a little sweet taste makes us feel a little happier and a little nicer, and we're actually does make us, at least temporarily, somewhat more agreeable with other people, <laughs> which is why <laughs> if you're doing an important demonstration or having a meeting where you want to get people all aligned together and or especially with you, bringing sweet treats to that meeting can actually have a very real impact on how people are going to interact with you and what you're presenting. So eating a little sweet does make us nicer. It does make us a little kinder and more receptive to each other. And so... Have a little sugar. That that is a very good tip. That if you want people to agree with you, bring donuts <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you about salt because I've always had, you know, just as a layperson, I've kind of followed some of the research around salt. Um, it used to be, I feel like, you know, ten or twenty years ago, people really thought salt is terrible. Try, try to get it out of your diet as much as possible. But but studies have not really borne that out, that as much salt as you can get out of your diet is a great thing. So can you give me a sense of how much should we be worrying about salt? How much is salt a problem? What does the research show? Okay, well, I just want to tell you about a study that was done in mice, which said you know, high salt is bad. So that would, but again, this was done in mice. So we also have to be careful when we're extrapolating from different species and how that affects Mm -hmm. humans. And on the same token, I want to talk about a study that showed that what the American Heart Association says is the amount of salt that is the healthy amount you should be in this zone or lower for hypertension purposes and all kinds of other purposes. And compared people who are actually adhering to that versus people who are in the middle zone, so having more, but not, you know, extreme amounts. Mm -hmm. And then people who are in the highest amount, that people who are in the middle, again, like this Goldilocks effect, they were the healthiest. So they were healthier with respect to all these heart indices and so forth than the people who were actually adhering to the American Heart Association mandates. So if you're in the middle, you know, you're not super, you know, low, but you're not super high in the middle, that seems to be fine and that seems to be the healthiest. Now, what's not known is whether or not people who were in the middle zone were also just having other aspects of their lives that were healthier. So in general, they were healthier because they sort of had a more balanced response to food overall. One of the other things about salt, though, that's a little insidious, and I actually am a person who loves salt, and I can tell you that this is the definite loop that it follows, is that the more salt we use, the more salt we like, and the more salt we want. And we can actually put ourselves on a salt diet if we were so inclined to reduce the amount of salt that we consume, and then actually won't want as much salt to eat. Um, You talk about this classic map of our tongue, which I've always sort of had in the back of my mind, always known was was a thing where there's salty and sour and sweet and bitter in different parts of our tongue. But it turns out 
actually, that's not how our tongue works in terms of uh, perceiving taste. Why does that myth or why does that belief exist that we sort of have this quadrant, our tongue is in quadrants? (laughs) Yeah, so this is, I think, an example of how when you have a really neat, easy, simple, pretty illustration (laughs) that that takes hold. It's almost like science marketing. You know, Mm -hmm. that tongue map was just such a simple way of explaining things and such an easy way for kids to learn about the tongue. It even shows up even still in college textbooks about, you know, where the senses of taste and different tastes are processed. So I think because it was such a simple illustration of it that that it just persisted, even though since the 70s it has been known to be wrong. But that banner has not been waved around enough to Mm. sort of really make its way well enough into the general zeitgeist for us to say, okay, stop thinking that we can actually taste everything equally everywhere in our tongue. And it all started with a mistranslation from an old German study (laughs) that was done in the 1950s from the study that was done in like early 1900s that just misinterpreted what the study found. And as a function of that, this tongue map was born and it has been very difficult to undo. But you can taste everything equally everywhere in your tongue. Hmm. So you spend a lot of time looking at all these studies, whether it's the jelly bean study or there's studies showing that if you sit nearer to the buffet, you're probably going to eat more than people who sit further away from the buffet. I just wonder if you've got a couple of tips for somebody who's they're trying to take more control over the food that they eat. Um, and, and maybe there's a couple of sort of easy starting points for them. Well, I think the number one to not overuse a word that is overused these days is to use a tiny bit of mindfulness with respect to food. And that is to say, don't put food around you in circumstances where you're going to be distracted. Like Mm. while you're watching TV, having the bowl of potato chips or jelly beans or whatever. Keep food away from that kind of environment. Also keep these sort of high-calorie treats away from your desk so that you're not going to be sort of just mindlessly putting your hand in and, you know, sticking, you know, eating without being aware of what you're eating. And that Mm -hmm. can make it much less pleasurable, actually, what you're consuming. You're not getting the same kind of hedonic reward from it, but you're also not even noticing what you're eating. And so you can Mm -hmm. eat a lot more that Mm -hmm. way. And if you do need to have something to munch on, you know, put celery sticks or something there instead. Mm. So the first thing I think you can do is sort of move food a little further from you. So not make it so easy to just sort of mindlessly eat things. And Along that same line, sort of try to be more engaged with what you're eating when you're eating it. So if you're paying attention to the food you're eating, you're going to get much more bang for your buck from it. You're going to feel the creaminess. You're going to get more sweetness. You're going to get more savory deliciousness. And when you're aware of that, you can feel satiated sooner than if you're not paying attention to those kinds of cues and you're just kind of, you know, eating away without really taking in the full experience. So those are some just really simple kind of just within you and food environment kinds of ways to do it. Hmm. Rachel Hers is a neuroscientist. She's an assistant professor at Brown University, and she's the author of the book, Why You Eat, What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. Rachel, thank you so much. Kara, it's been a delight. Thank you. We've got articles about the mythical tongue map and why we eat more when we've got a variety of food. That's on our website, innovationhub.org. This is a story about politics and missed opportunities. 
But it starts off, strangely enough, with a particular kind of knee surgery called arthroscopic partial meniscectomy. The surgery is for people with serious joint pain, which often comes from osteoarthritis or just from aging. And the surgery works quite well, or at least it seemed to. The New England Journal of Medicine published a landmark study where they found that this very common knee operation worked no better than a sham procedure in which a surgeon merely pretended to operate. That's Eric Potashnik, co-author of the book Unhealthy Politics, The Battle Over Evidence-Based Medicine. And so this was quite eye-opening and remarkable. So my co-authors and I, Alan Gerber of Yale and Connor Dowling of the University of Mississippi, were struck by this. We study political science and we study the way government works. And it had not occurred to us that a very common procedure might not be based on sound science. Potashnik teaches public policy and political science at Brown University. And the question of why a procedure would be done on hundreds of thousands of people a year when it didn't seem to do much and then be approved by, let's say, Medicare, that was an interesting question. But it got more interesting still. That original study explaining that a placebo knee operation worked just as well as a real knee operation was published in 2002. And if you're wondering, for the fake operation, the patients were basically sedated, but they weren't opened up. Well, by 2013, over a decade after the original study, the numbers of these particular knee surgeries were still increasing. There were 700,000 of them being done every year in the U.S., which is when another study revealed exactly the same thing. The actual surgery, in general, was no better than a placebo surgery. And actually, we are seeing a few more such studies in just in recent months on the use of heart stents and some shoulder operations. And we're finding, because a lot of uh, common procedures have not gone through this rigorous scrutiny, it's turning up when we do do these studies, some of the procedures that we thought really worked well uh, don't actually work as advertised. Some experts believe that less than half of all medical care is based or grounded on adequate evidence of its effectiveness. If this is setting off alarm bells in your head, it has for a lot of healthcare experts too. But the politics of making sure that healthcare is based on evidence, they're not easy. So there was an effort in the Affordable Care Act to establish um, government funding for what is called comparative effectiveness research. That's research that looks at how well a given treatment works compared to alternatives for the same condition. Say you have back pain. You know, what's the best way to address that? Would it be surgery? Would it be a drug? Would it be physical therapy? Um, There are many, many questions in medicine just like that. And all too often, the answer is to the question of what works best is we really don't know the answer. In a country with mediocre life expectancy, but the highest health care costs in the world, healthcare experts on both sides of the aisle had long chewed over the idea of a group that could digest and commission studies and determine how to improve medical care. And a plan was drawn up for such a group. But then a polarized partisan debate over the Affordable Care Act erupted, punctuated by cries of death panels. And so even conservatives and Republicans who are concerned about health care quality and who are concerned about uh, efficiency in health care and want to reduce wasteful spending and want the best for patients, there was a strategic incentive to attack that effort as leading to rationing or death panels or all the kinds of um, negative associations. And, and that was one of the casualties of the, of the debate over the Affordable Care Act was this 
bipartisan technocratic idea got caught up in um, this other debate. In most other countries, there is an organization with real power that helps to make decisions about medical treatments. They vary a lot. On the far extreme is uh, an agency called NICE in the United Kingdom. Uh, then, But agencies in Germany and Canada and Australia uh, don't quite follow the British model, but they move further than the U.S. has, has moved uh, in making sure that payers and clinicians um, take into account studies when making treatment decisions. Patashnik points out that our lack of attention evidence applies not just to needless surgeries, but to needless tests. 60% of women who have had a hysterectomy, he says, and therefore have no cervix, have gotten a pap test for cervical cancer. And our inability to address these shortcomings in our healthcare system, it boils down to a couple of things, inertia and fear. And what we have seen is that doctors believe strongly in the need for science to guide uh, care. But in many specific cases, when science challenges treatments, when, for example, a study comes out that says a new back surgery doesn't work as well as advertised, rather than embracing the science, we often see medical societies challenge it in an effort to maintain their professional autonomy, the discretion of individual clinicians to make treatment decisions tailored to the needs of their patients. And... There are a variety of reasons for this. There can be some good scientific reasons why you might want to uh, listen to the general evidence, but also think about what is most appropriate for the patient standing before the doctor. But there's other reasons, such as um, organizational inertia, financial incentives, psychological reasons why it can be hard to adapt to new information. Whatever the cause is, the result in practice is that we've, we've seen is that physicians have not consistently used their professional authority and prestige to move the American healthcare system to a more evidence-based place. Now, I would not think that it would be controversial or a partisan issue uh, for a group to say, look, you know, there's this knee operation. Lots of people have it every year to help with arthritis. Uh, but actually, you're just as well off if you don't have it as if you do. The placebo effect is just as good. Um, I would think Republicans might be happy because it would save the healthcare system a lot of money and reduce costs. And Democrats, I don't know, maybe they just be they maybe they'd be happy for exactly yeah. the same reason. I don't know. Yeah. So two points about that. One is it's really important to look at how these things play out in detail, and it can be a bit arcane. But in the knee case, to its credit, the Medicare agency did not ignore that blockbuster New England Journal of Medicine study. They did put out a rule to actually try to narrow coverage of the procedure. But what we saw was they were under tremendous pressure from uh, orthopedic societies to make their ruling as narrow as possible. And then what we also saw is that they was a growth in very closely related knee procedures that huh. were slightly different, but, um, but similar. Uh, grew from a yeah, similar, yeah, yeah, very yeah. similar. Yeah. And then subsequent research also discredited those latter mm. procedures as well. And so I think the point of our analysis is not that evidence has zero impact on policy. That mm -hmm. would be too strong a statement. But the uptake of evidence is extremely sluggish, and it's mediated by a tremendous amount of political pressure. And as a result, there can be 
be a really long lag between when a study finds that something doesn't work very well to how long it takes for policymakers to take into account and then how long it takes for doctors to change their treatment protocols. Mm. And the more general point is, I think you ask a great point is like, well, why should this be so difficult politically? After all, right. you know, Democrats, Republicans, everybody wants to make sure our healthcare system does, you know, as well for patients as possible. There's nobody who really wants to waste money. There's nobody who wants uh, patients to receive inferior care. But what we found is in our research, the American healthcare system really base, is based on a social contract where we sort of delegate authority to the medical profession to govern our healthcare system. That's the core of how our system is set up. And the question then becomes, well, if doctors don't exercise their professional authority in consistently to make sure that treatments are based on sound evidence, can politicians step in and correct that problem? Right. And what we found was, well, our public opinion surveys suggest that if doctors are not providing that leadership, politicians have a really weak incentive to do anything. Hmm. So what we did was... Um, if you're the typical member of Congress, for example, and it, let's say, you know, you're trying to build your career, okay. you you want to get reelected, you right. want to solve some problems. Right. What we found is that if you wade into these waters, it's really risky. Mm -hmm. So we did some studies with the public. And what we found is, well, if a politician comes out and says, look, here's the study that suggests that, you know, this back surgery really is not necessary. Mm -hmm. We're spending too much money on it. Mm -hmm. Look at the New England Journal of Medicine. Mm -hmm. They're their experts. Mm -hmm. I really think medical care could spend their money um, elsewhere in right. a better way. If you just make that statement by yourself, yeah. well, that's fine. The public will say, okay, well, that sounds good. However, if the doctor's groups challenge you, if the doctors say, huh. well, we really don't think that study's quite right, or we think that, you know, we still believe there are patients that would be helped by it, and you're the politician that right. comes out in favor of curbing the use, what we found in our public opinion surveys is that you're going to take a reputational hit. Not only will the public not be persuaded by what the politician says, the politician's reputation in the eyes of the public will decline. So so the upshot is, if you're a politician, essentially, you cannot get on the opposite side of doctors, mm -hmm. even if the science is on your side. That's just a really risky place to be. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Eric Potashnik. He's a professor of public policy and political science at Brown. He's a co-author of the new book, Unhealthy Politics, The Battle Over Evidence-Based Medicine. You know, we spend, I, I talked about this at the beginning, we spend more per person on, for health care than any other country and quite a bit more than almost every uh, industrialized country. How big a piece of that do you think is not... Uh, doctor salaries or drug prices or things that maybe deserve to you know. yeah. So I think I think we're talking hundreds of billions a year, Sorry, hundreds, hundreds of billions of a year in either yeah. unneeded tests, unneeded procedures, not very effective procedures, that sort of thing. Yeah, and, okay. and some small portion of medicine is almost completely useless. Then there's also probably much more common treatments that have some benefits, but the benefits do not remotely justify the costs, right? Okay. And so we have some low-value care, which is probably more common. So there are some kinds of therapies that should not be used at all. They just don't work very well. Then we have other treatments that do work for some patients, but we use them much too indiscriminately. And so, you know, the cervical screening cancer is a good example. You know, that diagnostic test does make sense for some patients, but it shouldn't be used for people for whom it's not adding any predictive 
power because it doesn't, you know, it's just not appropriate for right. that patient. And that's probably the more common. The more common situation is therapies, diagnostic tests that are expensive and that produce either no benefits or more frequently low benefits for their cost. Uh, and if we could find ways of el- reducing spending on, you know, cost ineffective care, that would be very helpful. Hmm. One thing that strikes me as we've had this whole conversation is how upside down the system seems. So many politicians obviously want to find solutions. They want to save money. Every doctor I've ever met has been very interested in evidence and taking care of their patients. Um, And no patient wants to undergo needless tests, needless procedures. I just wonder, in writing this book, um, what has surprised you the most? So I think what surprised me was the degree to which absolutely dedicated physicians who have, who have devoted their lives to improving patient welfare, and uh, I think that's critical, may not have a full understanding of how organizational incentives and the policy environment and the broader social pressures in which medicine is practiced can result in collective outcomes for Mm. us as a country as a whole that nobody would want. Mm. And I think, you know, individual physicians are caught up in this larger systemic problem. And I think they themselves don't fully have an appreciation for um, some of the broader forces that impinge upon their own practices. Eric Potashnik is a co-author of the book Unhealthy Politics, The Battle Over Evidence-Based Medicine. He's a professor of public policy and political science at Brown. Eric, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We talked at the beginning of this conversation about randomized trials designed to test the effectiveness of certain surgeries. Earlier this month, we looked at the power of randomized trials to teach us about everything from vitamin intake to the impact of zip codes on our lives. You can hear that interview at our website, innovationhub.org. Just click on the headline, From Scurvy to Surgery, The History of Randomized Trials. After the stock market crashed in 1929, there weren't a lot of people with huge amounts of money. But there were some. The Bamberger family had just sold their huge department store to Macy's a few weeks before the market tanked, and they had a ton of cash in a country that was now racing towards the Great Depression. The Bambergers wanted to do something good with their money, so they consulted a scholar named Abraham Flexner. And they asked him, should they open a medical school? Maybe one that did not discriminate by race or by religion. But Flexner had something else in mind, an institute that would be devoted to smart people thinking big and maybe even seemingly useless thoughts. Flexner knew that things that might seem to have little use initially, whether it's electricity or computers or quantum mechanics, those things often turn out to be more practical than people expect. So the Bambergers took their department store money and they helped Flexner build the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. And Flexner brought to the Institute some of the great minds that would have been in serious danger in Europe during the 1930s and 40s, like Albert Einstein. 
Robert Dykgraf is the current director of the Institute for Advanced Study and a professor of physics. He worries that the idea of bringing together great minds and just letting them play, that's no longer something we want to fund as a country. And that could mean that innovation will take a huge hit. Dykgraf has written a companion essay to Abraham Flexner's 1939 work, The Usefulness of Useless Knowledge. Robert, welcome. Oh, it's wonderful to be with you. So why do you think um, Abraham Flexner valued so highly, uh, quote unquote, useless knowledge? Well, I think he really was a visionary. He was an exceptional man that truly believed uh, that looking back in history, that the great transformation that he lived through himself, think mm-hmm. about the advent of electricity, mm-hmm. that they uh, all found their origin in passionate inquiry in the world, uh, not driven by any applications. Mm-hmm. And uh, to his own surprise, uh, I think this uh, this institute that he created, that he felt you know, it would take many, many decades to find anything useful, uh, right. was, I think, you know, in retrospect, the perfect case to, uh, that illustrates this thought. So let, let me just go back to that point of electricity for a minute, which seems so useful to us now. Are you saying that when electricity was first sort of understood, people didn't know what they were going to do with it? No, it was some crazy phenomena. You know, people went and <laughs> look at, you know, your hair would rise, uh, you would have sparks. Right, right. There's a famous uh, uh, quote of uh, Faraday, Michael Faraday, who in the 1830s was experimenting in Britain with electricity, that actually uh, William Gladstone, uh, who was then the, uh, the, uh, the exchequer, so the Minister of Finance, mm-hmm. came and asked, you know, what's this good for? And Faraday answered, I've no idea, but one day you might tax it. And, of course, we <laughs> yep. all pay taxes on, right. our, on our energy bills. And it's remarkable that even in 1900, you know, electricity was a bizarre phenomena. And mm. I think now every element of our life is electrified. There's nothing that you know, if, the, if, if we don't have any electricity, life stops. Can you talk about maybe a couple of other innovations where when people initially thought of them, they're like, well, this is interesting, but what the heck would you do with it? And it wasn't until, you know, some years or some decades online that people figured out, oh, this is what you could do with it. Well, there are two famous examples that happened actually under Flexner's nose, so to say, in the 1930s. The first is the uh, the advent of quantum mechanics, you know, studying uh, atoms and the electrons. And it was really some esoteric field where a few young physicists were working in. And actually, right this moment, it's estimated that uh, 30% of our economy is based on quantum mechanics. Wow. Um, in fact, with the advent of quantum computers, which is you know, about to happen, that might be even more, we really are using these kind of counterintuitive properties of quantum mechanics that you know, particle can be at two places to, uh, for secure coding of messages. Mm-hmm. We, we use it for, uh, as for all the nanomaterials that are mm-hmm. around us. So that's one example. Another example is actually the computer. Remarkably, the Institute for Advanced Study was a kind of the birthplace of the modern architecture computer, von Neumann, one of these other great giants, uh, perhaps the smartest Mm -hmm. person to live in the 20th century, also came in the 1930s, fled Europe. And he was interested in mathematical logic. Uh, And there were ideas of Turing and Gödel about constructing an abstract machine. And then he turned it into a real machine, 
well, and of course, our, our lives have been completely changed by the digital revolution too. So these are just two examples that, you know, Flexner himself was surprised to see kind of happening. Hmm. Um, and I think perhaps the most stunning example is Einstein, who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, more than a century ago thought of a theory of relativity. And when he passed away in the 1950s, his theory was praised as a work of art. You know, it had no applications, totally useless. It's interesting philosophical perspective. And now we actually use it in our GPS every day. Uh, oh, now, yeah. I couldn't find yeah, 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 uh, yeah. the studio without Einstein. <laughs> you talk about this uh, small project that I didn't know about, um, supported by the Digital Libraries Initiative of the National Science Foundation, which seems like the most obscure thing you've ever heard of, except that the two of the people who got were on this project were the two founders of Google. And you say it is possibly the government grant with the highest payoff Ever. I think those kinds of backstories are not told that often. No, it was a grant. I think it was like three and a half million dollars. And I'm not sure what Google or Alphabet now is worth. It must More. be uh, <laughs> 600 billion or something. Right, right, right. So it means that there, uh, it's a, a multiplier of 100,000 or more. Hmm. And so from the point of view of the government, if you have one of these investments, 99,999 could have failed right. and you would still come out money. ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Karen Miller. I'm talking with Robert Dykegraaf, a mathematical physicist at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. He's the author of a new companion essay to Abraham Flexner's The Usefulness of Useless Knowledge. You talk about uh, the launch of Sputnik by the Russians in 1957, a huge reminder to the American government we should probably spend some more money on research. Um, talk about what happened after that to, you know, research budgets. Well, it was a, it was a crucial period. I, I must say, I, uh, recently I talked to somebody who was working in particle physics uh, in 1959, and they were actually listening to Sputnik uh, flying over, and they jumped out of the offices and start cheering, saying, research money will come, because <laughs> this was the wake-up call <laughs> that America needed. And at that point, there was a, uh, and already, of course, at that point, there was a buildup of uh, what we now think of the modern research infrastructure, things like the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Health, the Department of Energy, large government funding scheme. But then I, th- I think at that point, the United States decided to invest massively in basic research, so research that doesn't have an immediate application into mind, and also really transform education. And anybody who looks at, say, magazines of that period, you will see many, many advertisements that are um, highlighting the role of science Mm. and the promise of innovation. I think there was, in some sense, it was a wake-up call, but it was also a very optimistic period in life where people Mm -hmm. were firmly believing that these massive investments in research would not only make this country safer and secure, but also uh, would increase the uh, well-being of people. You know, you talked about um, people looking at magazines in the 60s and they sort of highlighted scientists and science is amazing and that kind of thing. Do you think we've lost the optimism that existed then? I think we did. And uh, one thing I find kind of amazing is that on the one hand, we have this incredible progress in science and technology and we are much more kind of governed by it or, or, or controlled by it. Our lives is facilitated by all this science and technology. But it looks like we are less aware of it. 
uh, there's a certain risk that science will, on the one hand, be all pervasive. It will control our lives. It will be literally in our bloodstream, in our pockets, in our brains, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And the other hand, we are completely oblivious to it. Mm -hmm. And it's like invisible. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, I find it kind of uh, remarkable that uh, society is so short-term minded. Mm -hmm. uh, we are... We, Sometimes journalists uh, joke that they long back to the times when the news cycle was 24 hours. These days, it's like it's minutes. Uh, so science itself, which by definition is about long-term thinking, it's about uh, being very careful, it's, about, it's a very subtle art, it seems to fit not well in the present-day society. Mm -hmm. And yet, on the other hand, its speed is breathtaking. Right. It's changing our world. And right. so this kind of paradox right. of this great force that controls our lives but is kind of invisible mm -hmm. in the public perception, mm -hmm. I think that's a very dangerous situation. If you are running a government or even just electing people to government and you see, okay, there's all these pressing needs. We've got to fund education, healthcare costs are rising. You know, th these things need to be done like right this second. How do you make the case to people, well, let's invest in some stuff that we don't really know where it's going to go and maybe it'll go nowhere, but, but we should invest in some basic science, let's say. Well, my argument would be by investing in basic science, we are addressing all the other issues. So think about the money we spend in defense or the money we have to spend in healthcare or in education. You want to do it in a smart way. For instance, these days we are able to uh, deal with diseases at the molecular level, mm. which is only possible because 50 years ago we allowed scientists to ask basic questions about the basis of life. So it's not a cost. It's an investment that in the end will allow us to be much more cost-effective in all the other different subjects. Now, it's not that, of course, I'm arguing that you should spend all your money on basic research. You need a certain fraction. And I think this is the thing that we should debate. You know, you say, how much money should you put aside for deep, long-term investments that will dramatically change your outlook and your ability to solve the societal issues which we all are dealing with. Do you, and do you see any roads to sort of political feasibility uh, for the actual increasing of our research budget? Well, the good thing is, if you look back in history, that uh, basic research and science and technology, in some sense, never was a partisan issue. No, it's, uh, so to say, it's uh, equally attractive from the left and the right. Uh, it, it, it boosts the economy, it boosts our defense, and on the other hand, it's the great equalizer. I think, you know, uh, scientific talent is across all social strata, and it has been a great uh, mechanism to uplift large parts of society that do not have any chances. So it, it's equally beautiful from the left and the right. And I think do therefore... You worry, it, do you worry, though, that... It has, in some ways, become more of a partisan issue than at least you're saying it should be. I think it. I do worry about this, and I think you almost now feel uh, that there is something of an anti-intellectual climate there. I think this should not be. I think this is something. You no, know, uh, it's about understanding reality, <laughs> and reality, you know, uh, in the end has the has the last word. 
um, all, all our lives are based on just you know, the way reality works, and we, we, we want and we are in a position to control it in terms of matter and life and information. So I do worry that it has become much more a politically charged subject. I think science and technology should be one of the few causes that you know is seen as a benefit to all aspects of society. It's mm -hmm. something where, for instance, business interest and personal interest, people who are passionate about education or you know, passionate about national defense, they can all come together. Mm -hmm. Because it's, in the end, looking back in history, all of these different sectors in society benefited and benefited tremendously. Mm -hmm. I think if we would have, uh, literally, if I would snap my fingers now and all technology developed in the last hundred years would disappear, now our life would stop immediately. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's life would stop. Right. All parts of society, all parts of business would stop. So it's really something that should bring us together. Mm -hmm. Robert Dykgraf is the director of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. He's a professor of physics, and he's written a new companion essay to Abraham Flexner's book, The Usefulness of Useless Knowledge. Robert, this was great. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. Thank you very much. One last thing from Dyke Graf. After he got his master's degree in physics, he actually left the science world to study painting for a couple of years. In art school, I actually learned about the research process, which is not about studying for a test, but it's feeling free to explore. And when he later went to get his PhD in physics, he approached his work like he approached a canvas with paint. I said, I want to capture that attitude. That is to say, I want to make sketches. It's not about whether it's good or bad, it's about did I explore. We'll have a link to more of Dykegraaf's ideas about the power of scientific exploration at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.